Rampaging Rena wants to know. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I've only read Rupi Carr. What do you guys think about her? <laughs> First of all, Rampage. <laughs> okay, Rampage. Welcome to the Poet Salon, a podcast where we talk to poets over a drink we've prepared especially for them. I'm Gabrielle Bates. I'm Duji Tahat. Oh, sorry, sorry. I was going to drink. I was going to drink. And I'm Luther. I have my drink. Now Hughes. <laughs> this week, we're talking with Tanum Bambrick about sturgeon, sex, and stuff you throw in the trash. Hey. Our signature drink for this episode is an end of tour toddy. A regular hot toddy, but with a splash of hopped mead for a little added complexity and, you know, healing properties. Because tour is rough. Book tour is rough. So I wouldn't right. know personally. Right. None, of us none of us would know. know. <laughs> what that is. I have seen what it does to people and it is rough. It hurts the body. It does. Those germs are out there. Tanum Bambrick is the author of Vantage, which was selected by Sharon Olds, who we refer to as Auntie Sharon. For the 2019 American Poetry Review Hanekman First Book Award by Copper Canyon Press, her chapbook Reservoir was selected by The Ocean Vuong for the 2017 Yamasi Chapbook Prize. A graduate of the University of Arizona's MFA program, she is the winner of an Academy of American Poets University Prize, an Environmental Writing Fellowship from the Vermont Studio Art Center, and the 2018 Booth Nonfiction Contest. Her poems and essays appear or are forthcoming in the New Yorker, the American Poetry Review, Penn, Narrative, the Missouri Review, 32 Poems, West Branch, and elsewhere. She has received scholarships from the Sewanee Writers Conference, the Breadloaf's Writers Conference, and she is a Stegner Fellow at Stanford University. Damn. But before we jump into our conversation with Tanum, we're going to answer a question from our audience. Wondering Wilbur asks, how do people know when to use line breaks and when not to? When am I supposed to break the line? Oh, honey. <laughs> oh, sweetheart. It's such a good question. Boo. <laughs> oh, boo thing. It's such a good question. My rule of thumb for line breaks. You have uh, a rule of thumb. I have two thumbs. <laughs> um, two rules? <laughs> Wholly unrelated. <laughs> and the rule is, um, well, how I look at line breaks beyond like the academic kind of like maneuver um, is for the line itself to make um, sense. So mm. like say like you want to say the sky is blue and red, you break on the word blue because the sky is blue makes it makes sense. Mm. Where would you break that line where it wouldn't make sense? The sky this? break is blue and break red. Hmm. Right, gotcha. So it's like a unit of meaning on its own. Yeah. Yeah. If the unit makes sense, break the line there. But th that's just my go-to immediately sure. thinking. Um, there's other ways to break the line, obviously. Yeah. But what do y'all think? It really helped me uh, to think about the difference in pacing that a short line makes versus a long line. Um, that felt like it really equipped me to think in a new way about lines and that a poem made entirely of short lines has a slower pace, a long line, a reader is going to gallop through it a lot faster. So it's really just the kind of effect that you're wanting to get um, is one consideration. 
uh, I had professors who would forbid us to break a line on something like a preposition. Mm. Um, I think they're like any rule. They're wonderful ways to break that. Mm. But as a young poet starting out, uh, really trying to end on nouns and verbs, uh, lent the line mm. a sense of solidity. And it, it was satisfying. Like you, Lou, it gave a sense of like a f- complete thought, um, good stopping point. Mm. I think my impulse is towards like surprise, like, mm. you know, especially like compound words mm-hmm. or like, um, you know, knife handle is one that I really love to break it knife and then like, let, you know, let the handle sort of come in afterwards. Yeah. Um, just like sort of a sudden reorientation. Mm-hmm. Um, and then sort of over time, I think what I've come to realize is the, what enables that surprise is like the last, they're sort of, because the way a line break works is you get a little extra space to stay in that last word, right? Mm-hmm. So whether it is a preposition or an image or a conjunction or whatever, it's like there's a little bit of an emphasis there because it just like ends up occupying the reader's mind for just like a little bit longer than any of the other words in the line. Mm-hmm. And so now for me, the consideration is like, is that actually what I want to leave them with for just like a hot yeah. second longer than, you know, something else? Um, yeah, so it's evolved a little bit. Yeah, there's a there's a article on poetry that I cannot remember the person who wrote it, um, who talked about line breaks. Obviously, I'm probably making it up. Um, and uh, her thing was uh, there's six different six S's to break on, like mm. six S's. So it's sense making, syntax, sound, um, and other thing I'm forgetting now, but it was like a really Ooh. helpful. Thing. I, I use that article a lot to like when I teach students about line breaks. Yeah. It's a lot because like that. most students, <laughs> most poets don't really like really attune to line breaks. So that really gave me an idea like, oh, okay, break on sound, break on synth making, break on s- other things. Um, any poets you all love that have like amazing line breaks? I mean, yeah. Are you going to say? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I feel like. Yeah, any of my favorite poems would also have amazing line breaks. Because <laughs> you just have great taste like that. Well, I will say well, Sharon Olds has amazing Amazing, she does, yes. She breaks on words like the, and it just makes and somehow the it works. most sense. Yeah. I will say, I remember like what first came to mind is like Terrence Hayes, um, because I want to say like Lightheader, Wind in the Box, where he just like breaks in the middle of words, like at the syllable level. Mm. And I remember encountering that for the first time being like, oh shit, you can do that. Would it make mm. a word like where he broke it so that you'd get two words out of it? Yes. And, but then like he would also do it in a way where it didn't make a sense. Right. And th- like that is, you know, that's doing something um, that is different. And that to me is like really fascinating. And that is the thing that I sort of turn to now, like in my own work where, um, you know, if breakage is important or whatever, is if that's a subtext, then like that's a sort of a maneuver to just like turn to to see if that generates some other stuff, even in the like crafting or the revising. I'm curious. I have an aversion to like end stops. <gasps> I actually really love an end stop line, but it makes sense to me that, yeah, with your work, it makes less sense than it does with mine, I think. I feel like I come a little bit from the Sylvia Plath school of lines and that they're like very kind of even lined stanzas, a lot of end stops. There's something really satisfying to me about that because it allows you to get wild in other ways. Mm. You know, there's so much of poetry for me is about that tension between wildness and structure. And I think if you're embracing that sort of structure formally, 
it allows me to go in like weirder, darker places content wise mm. often, which like is something that I tend to be drawn to. Mm. Um, because if it's all wild, then it risks losing your reader. Or if it's all tame, then that contrast is gone. And that contrast is so important. Are you actively do you like, why do you actively not end on an end stopped line? Are you actively there trying to like yes. not line break there? One hundred percent. Interesting. Yeah. Wow, you always want to be in jammed. Yeah, it's like I, it, I some, I often like go back and it's like, ah, damn, I did it again, <laughs> and, like, <laughs> and then I have to sort of question that impulse, and I'm, I'm not even really entirely sure what it's about. It's just like there's something about maybe uh, a certain level of finality. I could see that feeling disingenuous to you. Yeah, yeah, I don't, like yeah. Things are always going on. They're always unspooling. And so to end, yeah, to have an in-stopped line conveys a certain assuredness and finality that like you fundamentally do not believe in <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> in your poetry. Yes, yeah. well, yes. And then they're like sort of on occasion, I'll write a poem where like that is happening, especially at like a stanza break, which to me is like an even uh, wilder place. Um, or potential for wild, more wildness. And so, like, I just drafted a poem, and, like, at the end of each stanza was a period, and I'm like, what the fuck is going on here? <laughs> like, really discreet rooms. Yeah, exactly. And that's just, like, so uh, different, I think, from my typical impulse. Um, yeah. How about you, Lou? Um, or has your relationship to the line changed over time? Like, when you look back over your earlier poems versus now? Other poem for sure try to not um, break on in stopped lines um, just because I feel like it wasn't enough surprise. Um, now I see myself naturally line breaking on commas a lot now and semicolons. And I don't know why that is, but something about, I guess, the content I'm writing um, kind of leans toward a a longing and I feel like a comma is like leans to like a, like a longing like you're not done yet yeah but you know something is next though right because it's a comma there and so I think my poem right now because it's about longing and desire is ending a lot of lines on commas right now and yeah. so for me that's kind of the the go-to yeah but like not natural like I mean not like on purpose this is kind of happening um so when I see that on poems a lot of mine I try to like rework uh, the line or the language to make sure I don't always end on a comma for like four lines straight. <laughs> but if it happens, right. it happens. Not to let it let it happen. But I'm not trying to make it happen. Yeah. Well, and that what that makes me think of too is just like the level of syntax in mm -hmm. like your work in particular, which is like it is complex syntax, and there's a lot of clauses, subordinate clauses, and so like it sort of feels natural that it would end that way. For me, I feel like my syntax is often like pretty straightforward, mm -hmm. right? Like this is this or this, uh, you know? And so there's just like less, it's funny because I just hadn't even considered there's just like less opportunity <laughs> <laughs> for me to break someplace. Like I'm either breaking mm -hmm. at an end stop or at yeah, an enjambment, those are your choices, right? Yeah. yeah. Mm. Syntax and enjambment. Mm. Yummy. Thanks, Wilbur. Yeah, Wilbur's thanks for great. that, Wilbur. You know who's kind of also great? Tanum. Definitely also, also Tanum. great. Let's get to that conversation. Let's do it. Hey.
<laughs> Tatum. Hello. Hello. You're here. Um, here. You're really here. Uh, you do such a good job of like before your readings and stuff, orienting people to this book. So I was wondering if you could just start us off by like giving that sort of orientation and reading a poem for us. Oh, sure. Unreported Incidents is what we're hoping you'll read. Oh, cool. Yeah. So this book follows my experiences as a 19 and 20 year old working on a garbage crew that operated around the reservoirs of two massive dams on the Columbia River. And I was the only woman who had ever worked there before. And so the poems primarily look at, investigate, whatever, um, the relationships between people and their garbage, and also how hypermasculinity can equate to survival in working class spaces. Unreported incidents. Ray spit in my hand. Motor oil leafed on still water, and he spoke over me, saying I waver when I issue commands. He kicked the drowned cat to shower me with its pocket of brown lake, said I wasn't worth the fuss I made, showing the boys their loneliness in the country where trucks sink to bone under the blue sound of electricity. Ray invented the game Chopstick Snake. With two branches, he tossed a rattler at the back of my legs. Eventually, he decided it wasn't his job to help me. A circle of drunk men, burning illegally, their faces sockets of cracked light. He laughed, go on, tell them to call it a night. My hands were behind my back when I asked, could you please? I turned to Ray. He smiled, reversed away as one man crushed a can, another draped his wet arm over me. Mm. Mm. so yeah so much of this book is about being this young woman working alongside these much older men and I find as I read this book I'm so terrified for this speaker like and it's part of what makes this book such a page turner for me is because like I have to get to the end and see like to what extent this character this figure like survives this space and um and that terror that I feel reading it is, is such an integral part of the experience of this book. And I was wondering, as you were writing it, what your relationship to fear was? Oh, that's a really good question, Gabby. Um, I think that when I was working there, I wasn't afraid very often, um, which is weird because a lot of scary things happened. But I think that it's kind of like the way that daily life is when you experience microaggressive things like um, on a regular basis that becomes what's normal um, or what you're used to and I think that when that's happening to you over and over again you sort of get into a place where you're um, you're learning your body is learning how to survive that same thing over and over again and so I think that like there were several moments um, where I was afraid and writing about them again was really hard. So Unreported Incidents, that poem is an example. Um, look, that's a real story where I was like left alone um, with this group of drunk men who were like trying to figure, you know, they were like all illegally having this campfire um, and we were supposed to tell them to put it out and the person I was working with left me alone with them. Um, and when he drove away, he didn't get very far. Like, I think he was just trying to send a message or something, but he left me alone with them. Um, 
And yeah, being like touched by a stranger who's drunk is really scary, especially a group of strangers and not knowing like what could happen to you. Um, so yeah, so writing about that can be really difficult. Um, I guess that like the, the main thing I would say is like, I wasn't afraid um, when I was there because I was so accustomed to everything that was happening. Mm. Um, and I think that the writing the poems, maybe trying to access that experience um, has been scarier than actually living those experiences was, if that makes sense. Yeah, mm-hmm. totally makes sense. Um, so I love this book for a lot of reasons. Oh. Um, one small reason is that I grew up in Yakima. Um, yes. We grew up in central Washington. Um, and Vantage, the actual town, is like 30 miles from where I grew up. Yes. Um, and I'm thinking in particular early on in the book, you write in gaps, uh, none of it is you really just you in this place Mm -hmm. um and that line like really spoke to me so much about like growing up in central washington um and i think it's also like proposing maybe an ethic of the book um that the book is like an interrogation like the book the entire book uh is an interrogation of the speaker's relationship to a place and the people that um inhabit it and i guess i'm curious like in this sort of memoir-ish collection that confesses a lot um how that relates to sort of an archive of a place. Um, And at the end of the book, I sort of found myself asking myself, so I figured I'd ask you, (laughs) 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 can one write a memoir at all without archiving place? Mm. Um, And if you're not, then what is... What's wrong with you? (laughs) Shake the table, did you? (laughs) Coming for you, memoirs. Let's go. (laughs) Shots fired. Who was this? Can you explain to me what you mean by archiving place? Yeah. Well, like in exploring your own experience and even I think in your last, the answer to your last question, like sort of recollecting and reaccessing your experience, like this book is just as much about a place, mm-hmm. right? And that speaker, your like relationship to that place. So like in, I think, articulating an experience you have subsequently or at the same time, I guess like, and that's the relationship I'm kind of curious about, like you're archiving place at the same time. So what are, what are those two things doing together and are they necessary? That's interesting. I think, I think I'd be, I'm like really obsessed with Vantage um, and with like the way that it's such an example of how um, our intervening with the environment can like, literally erase natural spaces and I don't want to and I'm careful not to uh conflate my own my own like issues and experiences with the issues and experiences of that place because I think that's problematic but I think that um those two things existing side by side like the sexism homophobia all those things that I was experiencing um and then all at the same time, like the really intense human and environmental issues of that space, like those were happening at the same time. And so I think that um, holding those two things together has been important to me. Um, and like, I mean, Vantage, um, it was this town at the bottom of a giant like gorge um, right alongside this river. And then when the dams came in, they pick, literally like picked the town up and moved it to the top of a cliff. Wow. Um, yeah, so they took all of these, like, houses and buildings and somehow, like, pulled them out of the ground, put them on the back of semi-trucks and, like, drove them up to the top of a cliff and uh, left some other s- structures just to be flooded. 
So you can still like scuba dive. People do this. And we would see people doing this all the time to go look at the like town that's underwater. And so it's like magical and so horrifying yeah. at the same time. <laughs> I know. And this, there's other things that happen too. Like there's really intense um, issues with um, like, the, like the rattlesnakes that live there, for example. Um, all of their like rattles. I don't know what, where rattlesnakes live in holes in the ground, but all of those um, flooded when the reservoir came in. And so the new town vantage up on this hill, all of the snakes like also migrated up to the top of this hill. Oh, People shit. couldn't even like leave their houses because they would get bit by snakes um, for several days. Yeah, it was like this really intense thing that happened. Yeah, so it's like this huge like human and environmental crisis that happened and continues to happen in different ways um, that I just became like so uh, fixated on while I was there. And I think that Again, I don't want to like conflate what was happening in my life with what happened to that place. But I think that um, I really wanted to write something that could hold the story, like you're saying, could like archive the story. <laughs> so fancy, your words. Um, We're could... professionals. <laughs> yeah, no, but like I wanted to be able to do those two things at the same time to um, to write about my own experiences, but also to honor like the really complicated history of that place. Um, and I hope that I did so in a way that doesn't conflate the issues. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about the conflation and like yeah. the, I mean, it sounds like you're aware of the risk as you're writing it, mm-hmm. like just sort of what that looks like as you're putting the project together for you. Yeah. Yeah. I think that like, it's really difficult. Um, like I think that a lot of like maybe early nature writing or environmental writing uh, tended to, and maybe still does, tend to like metaphorize the suffering of a specific landscape um, in order to talk about the suffering of the speaker. Mm. Um, and I think that that is, it's something like, because nature doesn't have a voice, so it's like not something that gets criticized very often. Because who would criticize it, you know? Mm. Um, but I think that it's important to... Uh, for me, it's always felt strange to say, like, you know, it, this would be a really different book if I was, like, the damned river is a metaphor of, like, my... I don't know, <laughs> like, what it would... Be. I don't even know what that would be. But, you know, I think that the that that, that conflation can be another form of violence to the environment. Um, mm. And so I try really hard not to do that. Um, yeah. Um, I guess what are my questions next? Um, <laughs> so in your poem, Invitation, a woman mm-hmm. says, um, you could be really stunning like if you lived in the city, um, which is <laughs> um, uh, so harsh. Um, but also, as I like thought about it, I didn't really know what that actually meant. Like, what does that yeah. actually mean? And so it got me thinking a lot about um, uh, poetics as far as like rural poetics and like wow. the greater Seattle poetics. So I was yeah. wondering or curious if you could, if you could define or describe um, Eastern Washington poetics slash rural <laughs> poetics yes. um, versus like the greater <laughs> Seattle Northwest <laughs> poetics. Cause I'm from Seattle. So oh, you're from Seattle? I'm like, like born and raised in Seattle. I didn't even know that um, about yeah, you. And so, and I write about nature too, but not in the way that you write about nature, right? My nature always consists of buildings and people and like this idea of a landscape yeah. versus the actual trees and birds because right. Seattle is pretty much right. a mix of city and nature. Yeah. But then when I read your book, um, which is in East, Eastern Washington, it's like 
completely like no like sky rises and buildings. It's all like <laughs> it's all more nature focused. And so yeah. I'm wondering about the mm-hmm. difference between um, rural poetics quotation mm. mark <laughs> or maybe even like beauty um, as opposed yeah, to poetic yeah, like yeah. How does that, yeah maybe either th- those, those aesthetics like the the tuning to those certain kind of things in your writing versus what yeah. you see in like folks who are like from a city or like live in a city yeah yeah okay um your question is really smart i'm gonna try to although there's so many parts to it that i want to make sure i answer um <laughs> <laughs> so i guess that um, it's so funny that you picked that line. Um, and I think that that's like, it's something that, like, that was something someone said to me and I thought about it so much where I was like, what does it mean? You could be, you could be pretty <laughs> if you lived in a city. <laughs> like, what is this? Right. But I think it's like that lack of access, like, you know, in Ellensburg, like the, where I grew up, the closest place to buy clothes, you know, is like maybe Yakima, but even Yakima, it's like Gap, you know, <laughs> like Macy's. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And then, and that's like an hour-ish, like 45 minutes away. And then Seattle's like two hours away. Right. So I just feel like we all just like wore like Ed Hardy jeans because there was a buckle nearby. <laughs> like it was that's like... That's real, that's real. American real. Eagle, yeah. a lot of American yeah. Eagle, Aeropostale. Yeah. That's what everyone yeah. wore, yeah, where all. I grew up too. I know. Yeah. Shout out to Birmingham. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. The only Such non-Washington boy, state like, person here. Okay. <laughs> I wish to drive somewhere. <laughs> going to the mall after the this yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh my god anyway continue anyway but I think I think that um, yeah I guess that like if I'm thinking about like Seattle versus eastern Washington um, I think that I don't so I haven't lived in Washington for a really long time like I um, I lived in Arizona for my MFA and then I've lived like in various places since then but so I guess my, my scope, because when I lived here, um, I didn't see myself as a poet. Um, when I was an undergrad and in high school, I didn't see myself as someone who could write poetry and I wasn't reading, like super actively reading. Um, so my sense of like Washington poetics is not very, um, I guess it's very limited. But what I remember from reading for like a couple different magazines in the area was a lot of like Blue Heron imagery you know like that like the gorgeous like um Puget Sound all of that kind of like really different nature um that people were referencing and I think that eastern Washington um because it's so rural it's a lot of like abandoned gas stations and like canyons and so I I guess that the feeling is more um folk it's more isolation than maybe like a Seattle poet which I don't know what do you think well, I feel like, I, and I feel like I asked my question because I think it was sort of related. Like, there's sort of a sort of forgottenness, like abandoning yeah. that mm-hmm. I feel like I'm familiar with growing up. Yeah. Um, and that's why sort of the archiving of the place is so fascinating to me because it is both like the place that is easily forgotten and the type of work yes. that the book, like, yeah. you know, like literally picking yeah. up trash is like oh. work that like you don't need to remember, right? Like, no, <laughs> there's nobody out there archiving yeah. that. Yeah. Um, And yeah, so I guess like I'm pushing, I feel like this book pushes back against maybe some of those received and inherited things. I think like growing up in Yakima, the assumption is like either you're going to move away (laughs) or you're going to sort of end up there and like it'll be, be it won't mean, yeah, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, I, I, I don't think that that is true, like as an adult, but I think that is like maybe the narrative growing up there that I find this book is also sort of working with. 
Mm. Yeah. What would be the third option between leaving or staying? Like, I think uh, what I'm saying is like, and maybe in a city because like the idea of it is much bigger and last longer lasting, like Mm -hmm. staying in Yakima is sort of equated to like not meaning a whole Mm -hmm. lot. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Like success sort of looks like. Mm hmm. Leaving wow. when you're young. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Totally. Yeah. yeah. I Again, I don't think that that's true. Like, mm-hmm. as an adult, I don't think like you know, living in Yakima, I think is totally like fine and doable. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> live in Yakima. Like, my mom is an adult who lives in Yakima. Like, <laughs> it's <laughs> totally fine. But I think as a young person, like, yeah, I'm surrounded, and I think it's reinforced by like, there's a bunch of abandoned shit. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> like a bunch of empty, abandoned shit, falling farmhouses mm-hmm. in the middle of abandoned wheat fields. Like, you know, yeah. like and sagebrush well it's also like <laughs> this place that's so like the columbia river is so remote that that's like where they developed the plutonium for the nuclear bomb right. um yeah. because they were like no one will ever find what we're doing here you know this is like <laughs> a safe place to do this really unsafe thing um and like a river that we can pollute and it won't affect anyone um and of course anyone is like a really problematic term mm-hmm. but yeah but i think that the that isolation is like really risky and scary. And I think the loneliness of that place is like totally a part of its poetics in that way. It's a cool question. Did that answer your question? It did. Yeah. I'm thinking about, uh, you both mentioned like a loneliness or, or an abandonment. 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 Like a, how that's, at least for both of you, um, it's kind of in, this idea of like rural poetics mm-hmm. um kind of think of abandonment and loneliness in poems that are about the city it's so outwardly said like i am lonely and it's like because i'm in a city i'm lonely versus in rural poetics it seemed like the loneliness is already inherently into the content of it because it's right. in an area that's already like fixated in that kind of um resonance so it's interesting mm. um that you both said that um and then thinking about again that how your work is like kind of working through a um, not necessarily abandonment, but this the 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 landscape is kind of abandoned in that way. So working with the landscape to figure out what that means and mm. looks like right. um, as a person, as a woman, only woman in a group of men. Like <sighs> my head is buzzing. Oh. <laughs> I think so much about the difference between loneliness and isolation. I think they're incredibly different things, and I I tend to associate loneliness a lot more with cities. Um, in a isolated rural space, my experience has been community actually becomes like much closer yeah, and true. Um, like the human to human connection is typically felt much more strongly. Um, so I think that's really interesting to like bring those two terms yeah. into this conversation. I think density like is key to sort of like both of those things, right? Mm-hmm. Like there to your point too, Luther, like you have to sort of express loneliness because like it's an acknowledgement that there are things around you right that yeah. there's a lot of stuff around you uh, approximate to you like densely so <laughs> whereas yeah. like I, uh, in rural spaces it's like there's just so much more space so like <laughs> that just serves as the metaphor you know that's just you just look around and you're like damn there's nothing here <laughs> i must be alone <laughs> oh my god
Invitation. Lowering a window, Sarah lit a cigarette. So you like girls, she said, but you used to do men. She dug a stick of glitter from her purse and pressed down on my right eyelid. I have a friend like that. She had a bad thing happen her first time at sex. Sex with men. I nodded. My eyes ringed with purple like reversed lily pads. Sugar from a bag of gummy worms cracked in our teeth. You could be really stunning, she said, like if you lived in a city. I laughed and reached for the cigarette. Now I have your virginity, she winked. She told me that night she was going to be the girl at an all-guys party in Richland. You should come. She smiled like people smile before they break something. Don't lie to me, she said, holding out her phone with the image of the invitation. Have you ever pictured yourself at the center like that, being fucked by a group of men? What? <laughs> so scary. I was Damn. holding my breath the entire time. <laughs> me too. Let's all breathe. <sighs> um... There are so many bodies in your book, um, both human and animal, um, alive and dead. Um, so I'm curious about how you come to writing the body um, versus um, writing the landscape and the landscape kind of serving as a body itself. And so I'm curious about that relationship and how you navigate or write towards or away from um, body um, versus landscape. I'm quoting body and landscape for people who are listening. <laughs> hand I quotes love all your abound. hand quotes that you I do. Thought, so I do is quote. It's a Hello. for us. <laughs> How are you? <laughs> um, okay, so how I think about writing about like people's bodies versus the body mm. of the environment or mm. the landscape. Even, yeah. even animals' bodies as well as people's body and that kind of being like a link between body and landscape in some yeah. way. So like writing about all that and then towards all that or away from all that. Right. Okay. Um, I think there's a couple of things I want to say about that. So the first thing is that um, there were a lot of times, like, there's a poem called Good Men Process. Um, and in that poem, there's this man gets, like, this bicyclist is, is you know, biking on the side of a highway and gets hit. Um, and he passes away. And, like, people I was working with, like, were there with him when he died. And it was really traumatic for them. Um there's a line in that poem that says, I won't open that image, which is like, I won't describe for you the body of this man as he was dying. Um, because even though that was something that I like saw, um, it's not something that I feel like the reader needs to see. And I think that, so I thought a lot about, um, there's another poem too uh, called Elk Splat, where like 27 elk jump off a cliff and um, trying to like, they hear the sound of a jet ski, but think that it's like, like this is what the scientists guessed is that they thought that maybe it was a hunter chasing them um, because it's really hard for animals to differentiate between loud sounds. Like they don't know what they're hearing. They just know they're afraid. Um, and so the, you know, I have a poem that talks about like their bodies um, after they fell off a cliff and being like this like perfect triangle. It was really scary. Um, and I think in every instance where I'm talking about bodies, whether it's like human bodies or animals' bodies, um, I'm trying to do that in a way that doesn't reenact violence onto the reader. Mm. Um, 
And that's really important to me uh, because I think that like unnecessary violence in poetry is like something that pushes like it, it makes it hard for me to be a reader sometimes when I um, encounter like gruesome violent things that it feels like there's no reason for me to have to see them. So I think a lot about like the way that I'm portraying death and the way that I'm portraying like these like gruesome images and trying to make sure that um, I'm not like making my audience into like the recipients of an image that they shouldn't have to be um, receiving. And so, yes, I think that like the question that you're asking is about like how I think about writing about animal bodies versus human bodies. I guess like I think about when I was in that place, mostly what I was seeing was like, it was like so much death all the time. So that's my, I feel like my answer is like leaning towards like <laughs> that. Um, but yeah, I guess um, there's another poem where um, the speaker finds like these two men whose job it is to shoot seagulls all day. Biological control task is that poem. Um, and they have like this like truck bed full of like 80 seagulls that they've shot. And they're doing this because the seagulls are, like, eating the salmon, the, the dam trap in the river. Um, so they, um, like, are shooting these seagulls all day as a part of their job. Um, and the speaker is, like, trying to understand this process. But then also, like, um, they had picked up a blue heron at the same time because this, like, hatchery had shot a blue heron for trying to eat the salmon there. And um, in that poem, the speaker is like more sad about the blue heron than she is about the seagulls. And I think that's a moment where the speaker is like super complicit, um, where it's like this like beautiful bird makes her more sad than like the 80 seagulls mm -hmm. that were killed um, that day. And so, yes, yeah, so I think about like um, the speaker's reactions to various bodies, too, is like something that I think mm. says a lot about... Um, complicity about um you know like the values that we have and how that affects um like you know like the, the um the love that we have for a blue heron in comparison to these seagulls makes us value like makes the speaker value one over the other and the same thing applies to like salmon versus sturgeon so like mm -hmm. the sturgeon are totally trapped between dams um and we don't have fish passage for them so they live their whole lives which is a hundred years um like one of the longest lives of a fish and um the salmon because we eat them and value them and they're like more beautiful um they're able to pass through the dams more easily um so I think that I'm interested in how like the beauty of a specific body changes mm. the way that it's treated changes the way that it gets to live its life when we're thinking about animals and I think that applies also to um people you know like um, the poem that you asked about, Invitation, the woman who came in to work with us, um, she was like really, really beautiful. And she worked on the garbage crew for like only a couple months. But while she was there, um, no one made her do anything. And mm -hmm. everyone was like obsessed with her. And um, I was really jealous because that was not how I was being treated at all. And yeah, so I think that there's like this interest that I have in how, pe like, how our values um, or how like societal values are demonstrated by like the way that specific like um, animals, people, whoever we're talking about are being treated in a workplace or in the environment. It's a long rambling answer. No, it was <laughs> no. great. It was great. It wasn't rambling at all. Cut whatever you want. No.
Um, so I'm really intrigued by how narrative's working in the book. Okay. Um, obviously, a lot of individual poems are narrative-driven, and the way the poems are sequenced are, uh, tell their own like ambitious narrative that weaves together a lot, right? Like place, labor, gender, sexuality. Is that a narrative? <laughs> in air quotes. <laughs> no. Um, but as you were reading last night, I was actually particularly struck by how um, you started with the first poem in the book. Then I yeah. think you read sort of randomly throughout. And then you ended with the second poem in the book. Oh, wow. You're such a good listener. Um, no, really paying attention there. <laughs> well, and it, Star student. It, because as I was, like, I realized it just, like, was a different version of the story. Yeah. Um, suddenly. Or at least, like, it emphasized something else. Right. Um, and so I guess I was wondering if you could talk about the process of putting the book together um, and uh, whether or not, so you feel like you tried out all the differences and you thought this was the best one, or if, like, this sort of approach in your readings, maybe while you're on your book tour, you've tried out different sequences that have surprised you, maybe. Oh, um, those are interesting questions. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Um, so I, I feel like the, it's weird. I mean, I feel like the poems sort of like, I wrote them, it's not in chronological order in terms of like how it actually happened to me. Um, and really the poems, I'm mostly only writing about the first year that I worked there. Like uh, the second year was a lot more, um, was a lot less, a lot less interesting. <laughs> so I barely <laughs> wrote about it at all. Um, but the, yeah, so the order is, like, I don't really know how it happened. I guess I've been writing this book for six years, like, since I was, like, 21 years old. Um, and the poem Litter was the first poem I wrote, like, kind of ever. I wrote a lot of messy, like, diary-ish <laughs> poems before I was, like, actually in school studying it. Um, and, yeah, so I guess that the, the order came from... Um, like I was thinking about a lot about pace and about um, what might, might make a reader tired or what might be too much. Um, so my friend uh, Joss Charles, she's an amazing poet. She was we got our MFA together and she was like kind of on my thesis committee, even though she was a student. Um, <laughs> and cool. yeah, I love people like that. <laughs> so yeah, like, like you're whatever. smart enough to just be, she's yeah, like there. a finalist for the Pulitzer prize right now. So it's fine. <laughs> but, um, but I was, but she said to me, um, like you have too many poems that have the word condom in them in a row. <laughs> <laughs> and so like, cause so originally it was like yeah. litter and then Ray, the poem that's like a little further back now. But, um, but those were like the first two poems, but she was like, you can't have it be like, kind of, kind of, Like we get it. Yeah, we get, we get it. So many condoms. <laughs> but yeah, so I definitely listened to that. Like I kind of tried to like um, pace where the same language, the same imagery was falling. Um, and I also, I think of there being like a couple different types of poems, like poems about animals, poems about like a sexist experience, poems about work. Um, character poems I try to like stagger those um, and so it's interesting because people have told me that it feels like chronological to them like it's like oh this is exactly how it happened um, and I'm glad that it feels that way but that is definitely not true to like how it was actually experienced you know but um, but yeah I was mostly thinking about separating things that were alike and um, creating enough variation to like have it be interesting um so i wasn't putting yeah go ahead well yeah i'm curious then if that was the case in sort of crafting the book it felt like yesterday you were reading like a particular type of poem so you did oh. sort of like a lot of like 
a lot of them were about experiencing like sexist experiences. That's true. I think I, yeah. Does that, is that something that you found yourself like doing during the tour or like, I just, yeah, those seem like just different. No. Like, yeah. I think I've read a lot of these poems out loud and I just read the ones that people react to the most now. So, um, especially like when, you know, when you're on tour, sometimes they'll be like, we need you to fill an entire hour. And you're like, what (laughs) am I going to do? My book doesn't even take that long to read out loud. (laughs) So it's like a lot of storytelling and jokes and like things I'm not good at. And then, um, you're great at that. (laughs) No, it's like bad. It's like stand up. (laughs) Yeah. And then sometimes they're like five minutes and you're like, okay, I flew here for this, but whatever. (laughs) (laughs) So it's like, I don't know. I have like different set, like things like last night was 10 minutes. Um, and so I was like, okay, 10 minutes for me, that's like five poems. Um, and so I just read the ones that I know people are like, like make the most whatever noises in the audience too. When I read (laughs) what, what (laughs) I interact. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. A lively audience member. Everyone loves that. Audience. Yeah. We all Seattle loves it. Seattle loves it. (laughs) So yeah. So I guess like, I think people react the most to, um, the poems that are about sexism. It's true, Mm -hmm. which is interesting. Mm -hmm. But I also, I always read um, Elk Splat because people generally are like interested in that one too. Um, so there aren't a lot, like, also I did not write this book thinking about performing it because I kind of didn't write this book thinking it would be a book. Like I was just writing it because I was obsessed with this place and these things. So I never thought about like being on a book tour and needing poems that used like repetition or sound like these things like heavily to the point to where they would sound really good out loud and make people you know um have some kind of emotional response um so a lot of them are very much like on the page which has made it difficult Mm. to find poems to read out loud but i think that there's like 10 of them that i can read out loud and people seem to react but yeah i just choose whatever seems to go the best i guess Yeah. (laughs) yeah And thinking about like book structuring, Mm -hmm. I love the essay that you include, like at the very end, Sturgeon. Um, How did that come to be a part of this book? And did you go back and forth on like where to put it and maybe talk a little bit about it for the listeners who haven't had the pleasure of reading it yet? Yeah, yeah. Um, So I guess like I felt like the book was done when I finished writing that that essay. I almost called it a poem. I mean, you could call it a poem. Yeah. Well, I don't know, but I think that like it feels like an essay to me. But it's so <laughs> it it's so an beautiful, it and the an language is yeah, so it, crafted. It, it yeah. won an essay contest. It's, so it's like it's an essay, I think. But I feel I don't know. <laughs> but it belongs in the book. Like it's not like oh, and now the book ends, but we have this essay afterwards. Like it's very much in keeping with the poems in terms of its attention to imagery I hope and so. obviously all of the same themes are running through. Cool. And it wasn't like explaining the book at all. Which and yet it is like very clear real... and explicit. Oh, totally. You know, yeah, yeah. yeah there's no like coded. Yeah. Right. Um, I guess that essay started when my dad, who um, I love so much, but have a really complicated relationship with. Sorry, dad. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> he... The book makes that clear, I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so he told me this story because most of my like my grandfather my dad my mom all of them have like worked for this dam in some capacity um and so my dad part of his job was like he was maintaining fish ladders and fish passage on the dam 
and when he was in college so when he was about the same age that I was while I was writing the book um and he um told me this story about how sturgeon when they would like attempt to get through the dam would get like stuck in the base pools under it um and the base pools are a very scary place where like logs and big huge things that try to go through the turbines like don't make it through and they fall into this like basically like a giant I don't know like pool of water at the bottom of the dam um and so he and other people would find sturgeon down there and sturgeon are like as big as sharks like they're like 10 feet long most of the time when they're fully grown um and so they would find these sturgeon down there and like put them on human stretchers carry them out of the dam and like dump them back into the reservoir and I guess that when he told me that story I was like oh this is an intersection between like the human world and the environmental world um this is a moment where like it's a it's a place where like I can love my dad too, where I can see him doing this like really empathetic thing. Um, and also a place where you can see like where environmental issues are the most urgent, where we're like carrying one fish at a time out of a dam on a human stretcher. Like that's like such an intense image. Um, and so he told me that. And I think that like while I was writing this book, I asked him a lot of clarifying questions because there's a lot of like sciencey things in it that I don't <laughs> fully understand. And he's a fish biologist. Um, and also he got me my job working there um, because he was like, oh, I have a buddy that like needs somebody to work on this garbage crew. Would you like want that for your summer job? Um, and so he got me this job, which was how I paid for college and so yeah, so it's this whole book is like totally about my relationship with him, even though that's only apparent in the end. Um, mm -hmm. And yeah, so I it's the only part of the book that I like sobbed while writing. Um, mm -hmm. It's the only part that like took something from me that I wasn't expecting, you know. Um, yeah, and I think that the the idea of this like huge beautiful fish that's like trying to get to the ocean and can't get to the ocean um, and living alone for like a hundred years in the huge like polluted reservoir. It's like the saddest yeah. thing I can think of. And so, um, and I think that that, that sadness, the sadness that I feel for like this like lonely, um, intense, like, like these fish are like, they're like alligators, but they've been alive since like the dinosaurs were on earth, you know? Um, like feeling so much um like feeling so much ad admiration for them and also like so sad um for like how their life is now I guess that the essay um is focusing on that feeling as sort of like a metaphor of like the environmental crisis that we're in right now and I think that it's also so the essay is like definitely like about that um but I think it's also about how difficult it can be to be like a part of a family and how difficult it can be to be a daughter and to be like queer in a rural place and to be someone who's like survived assault and like all these different like huge themes um, that I couldn't quite access in poems. And I think that the reason why I couldn't is because in poems, it can be difficult to be like explicit about things that mm. are urgent to us, right? And mm. I, so I think that the that the essay came in. Um, actually, I was in the Breadloaf Environmental Writers Conference and um, I brought in like these scraps of that essay and made my um, 
workshop helped me edit them and it was a poetry workshop and they were all really mad because (laughs) poets like poets never want to read prose you know (laughs) and so um but they were like even though we hate reading prose we think there's something here and um originally I wasn't writing about my dad at all I was just Mm. writing about sturgeon only and um they were like it feels like there's something underlying you know there's something else going on here so that really helped me um yeah and then I like went home from that conference wrote the whole essay in a day and then sobbed and (laughs) was like my book is done (laughs) amazing yeah (laughs) what an exclamation point (laughs) oh yeah and I guess it comes at the end of the book because um I mean there's another essay too the the essay body counting so I wanted there to be like a couple of essays but I felt like I needed to like earn that much space and earn Mm. the reader's trust to put them into you know, I, cause I think, um, I think of like Laylee Long Soldier's book, Whereas, like towards the end, there's that beautiful essay in Whereas. And I really liked where she positioned that because it felt like, um, I trusted where that book was going. I trusted like her as a poet. I was like there for whatever she was going to do by the time that I got to that essay. Mm-hmm. And so I felt like, okay, maybe where I think I was in- inspired by her. And that's kind of how I thought about where to put the essay in my book. Yes. Thanks for that question. Oh, I love that piece. I remember when it came out and like reading it online and then oh. and then encountering it in the book. It was just like <laughs> <sighs> all over again. That's so nice. Mm. Thank you. Field guide. That was me combing the bee legs out. My ponytail a hot nest. Wanting simple eating french fries from your mouth, saying yes, I would like, series of company website photographs. Click on me posed in a tube where the horse floated out. Washington's Palm Springs. Please come visit you, your whole family, my pulled up weedy feet. That was the purple eyeliner month, land land shark and burnets buried in dirt behind my parents. When I ate the most hot dogs, extra large pizza lunch how small and how much. I hiked a car door from a pasture in the summer drought, strapped to my belt, waved while stabbing cups off, my friends, slurpees and bikinis. Guys called them a bald eagle sighting, added four to the tally. We were the kind they'd like to see at the nude beach, but a nude beach is never what you think. 20-person tents, golfer wearing a yellow dick sling, That was when they left me to clean. A man should never see another man fucking, even in the movies. Worse things work against biology. For example, who would put a teenage girl this far from cell service? Problem of access. Car tires stuffed in vault toilets. My new awareness. Burying tampons in an open field. Dirt stamped my bright hands. It was funny. They drove away when I pulled down my pants. I could run the two miles back, and it was like me to hold the radio to my mouth, so they'd hear. I heard, too, from the truck speakers driving up the road, how balanced, how practiced I was at that clipped breath. Thank you to Tainum for being a true gem, for talking eco-poetics, and for drinking toddies with us. Thank you to the Flipper Blue for our awesome theme music, Fatty and Spaghetti. Fatty. 
and thank you, listeners, lovers, and friends, for being your wonderful, truly wistful selves. Wistful? Let's go. I have faith in our listeners. Please, if you haven't already, take a quick Speedy Gonzalez moment to rate us five stars. <laughs> and write us a review. Please. And, you know, also follow us on Twitter at Poets Alon Pod and send along your mm, inappropriate questions, your most hated flower, mm. and what you love about crows. What do you love about them? That I love them, probably. And send that along to the Poets Alon Pod at gmail.com. Org. Oh, God. How are you going to confuse them again? It's calm. The Poets Alon Pod at gmail.com. As in company. Bye. Fetty and spaghetti, because my crew rock steady. Fetty and spaghetti. Fetty and spaghetti. Yeah. Chi wally wally, uchi bang bang. While the world is falling, we can maintain full den origami, making crane cranes. Got a thousand wishes on my brain brain. I put salt in the water when I'm cooking up the pasta. Trying to keep me quiet, but you know it's gonna cost ya. Cause I cook them proper, redder than a lobster. Go make bait, but my mama was a mobster. You wanna weaponize this? Gonna show you these hands. Gonna take on these streets. Gonna show you who's man's. Cause my crew mob steady. Feddy and spaghetti. Feddy and spaghetti. Feddy in the. Whew. Is that what it stands for? Company? I think oh, so. Maybe. That it makes is. a Company, ton of sense. organization, yeah. education. Oh, wow. My mind is blown right now. You just did that. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> At gmail.company. I thought it was um, compliments. So dot .net is what, network? Yeah. You guys, this is like, well, also Google this when I was like 11 years old. So maybe that's not why. Yeah, that's embarrassing. Like, <laughs> I was, I, listen, I'm what a big a nerd. Yeah, dorky yeah, yeah, ass 11-year-old. Well, also on like gay chat rooms when I was 11 years old. So. Oh. Come on, what's your right, ASL? Right, what's your right, ASL? Right. I am 16. Dot com. Male. Seattle, Washington. Spicy. That is not okay if my mom had me yeah. on there like that. Well, you know. It's in the AOL connection. <laughs> mom, put down the phone. Uh, 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 uh,